Hey, this is Jim Fleming, and this is the Stuart Heights Fleming Sunday School Podcast. This podcast is a recording of our weekly Sunday School class, as well as a few other teaching opportunities I get at my church. But before you listen further, you may want to go to teachings.jim314.com and download the student and or teacher handouts so you can follow along visually and take some notes. Thanks for listening, come back often, and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app or to iTunes. Now let's get to this week's lesson. Good morning, everybody. If you will, go ahead and grab your handout in the middle of your table, and uh, we'll start this morning. We're in week four of Haggai, and uh, just to make sure we know where we are in the history of the world, let's take a look at that chart at the top of that uh, handout real quick. So the history of the Israeli kingdoms uh, obviously started with uh, David and Saul, and David and Solomon, the kingdom was divided. You've got the northern kingdom, you've got the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was taken into exile uh, into Babylon, and when the Israelites were allowed to return back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem, uh, they were commanded to go and to rebuild the temple, uh, and they started that process, but they did not immediately finish that process. So God sent them uh, prophets to encourage them. Um, the book of Haggai itself is about several different things, but it's about four different prophecies. Uh, the last three weeks, we've looked at the first prophecy in chapter 1. Uh, today, we look at the second prophecy, and there's two more in chapter 2. It's only a two-chapter book, so it's pretty quick. Uh, it's also about prioritization, putting priorities in the right order, making sure that we've got what God has commanded us to do in the right spot. Uh, there's a little bit of cheerleading that happens in chapter 1 that Haggai encourages the people and we saw them get to work and then the hope that we'll see in a couple of weeks talking about Zerubbabel and what he represents and the looking forward uh, into the future. So we also talked a little bit about what a prophet is and a prophet is somebody that basically sees a challenge or a problem and says we need to adjust our behavior. Uh, Haggai was calling uh, the Israelites back to the law because the law said you are supposed to worship God in a very specific way and they had decided to ignore that. So Haggai is calling them back and saying there are very real physical things you need to do to restore uh, the temple worship process so that, actually let me rephrase that, the worship of God that utilized the temple, they didn't worship the temple. Um, Well actually that was, some of them did worship the temple. And that was a problem, too. Uh, But that's for another lesson. It's a whole different book of the Bible. Uh, And uh, I think Terry Brown tagged it best when he said a prophet was somebody who saw the check engine light on and delivered a message. Uh, Someone who was aware of both reality and what what is going on in the world. Uh, We talked about how messages are fulfilled and what prophecy looks like. We talked about how immediate fulfillment and future fulfillment and this idea of There's waves of fulfillment in the Old Testament uh, with these prophecies, and and we're really, really, really going to see this evident today as well as next week and the week after because some of the stuff that Haggai tells the Israelites is for right then, and it is also for the next 10, 20, 30 years. It's also for 500 years later. It's also for some undetermined amount of time after that when Jesus Christ comes back. So there are multiple waves of fulfillment of the prophecy that we will see today. Uh, And then today's text actually has two different parts. There's a a fairly straightforward part, the first few verses of chapter 2, and then you get into the really 
kind of nitty-gritty meat of the prophecy uh, in the first uh, part of that uh, chapter in chapter 2. So it gets a little tricky there, and I'll walk you through what I think the Scripture... Well, I'll walk you through what I know the Scripture says, and I'll show you a couple different ways to, to look at that. So if you've got your Bibles, let's start with Haggai uh, 1 and 2. We'll read through the text. <clears throat> and then we'll take a look at some explanation. So Haggai 1, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, and on men and livestock, and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. Chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And the priests answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. 
And now, carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord since those days, when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten, and one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, and there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, and every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So that is the text of the book of Haggai. And I hope you've read through it several times. You kind of get a feel for what's going on and how the, the text moves through. Something that I want to... I thought about doing this in the first week, but I really didn't have time. and I had a little bit of time today, so I want to go back and cover... The, the transformation of the history of God's house. So where did God live in the Old Testament? Because it's going to help us understand some of the verses here in the early part of chapter 2. Uh, so I want to start with uh, the first location that God said, I will put my presence there. So what was that in the Old Testament? The tabernacle, right? Good. So you've got the tabernacle, and Moses oversaw the construction. So Moses leads the people of uh, Israel out of Egypt, and God basically instantly gives him directions on how to put the tabernacle together. And he gets artisans together, uh, and this is where Bezalel and Othniel come together, and they do just amazingly brilliant artistic works. And for those of you that are talented and skilled with craftsmanship and artistic works, that is a gift from God, and he needs you to use that for his glory. That This is a good and, and right thing to do. So they put this together, and it's designed to be very mobile. There are chapters worth of discussions on how you take it apart and you put it together this way and these people carry these parts and and it's just it's transported this way and this is where you set it up and this is where you don't set it up and this is how you set it up and this is how you don't set it up lots of descriptions on this and this was eventually replaced by the temple because God put it in David's heart to build God a house a permanent structure for his presence to dwell in and did David get to build the temple no. Why didn't he get to build the temple? He's, he's a man of war, right? He, was, he, was, he had blood on his hands. So God said, no, you're not going to get to do this. But the tabernacle looked something like this. And I, I found these pictures off of... Uh, uh, there's a website. There's actually a, a Bible software called Logos. And they have a lot of different uh, resources that are embedded in. and some really great graphics here. But what I want you to focus on is actually not the tabernacle itself. It's the size of the tabernacle. So this is the approximate size of the tabernacle compared to an American football field. So it was quite small relative to what we might think the actual size was. And this is actually going to matter quite a bit as we go through and talk. Hey, guys. Um, <clears throat> sorry, squirrel moment. It's good to see you. And so this is replaced then by the temple. And Solomon builds the temple in about 957 B.C., highly immobile, right? We are building a house. It is not designed to be picked up and moved somewhere else. We are planting. We are going to stay here. This spot now becomes the holiest place on the face of the earth, right? So just, just make sure we understand a very specific location that does not move. 
Uh, the problem is the Babylonians came along. Uh, you remember that slide that we looked at a while ago with the, uh, the southern kingdom? When the Babylonians came and took the Israelites here, they also <coughs> ransacked the temple and took out the holy instruments and used those things that Bezalel and Othniel created. And they decided to use those for the worship of false gods. And, and God didn't take that lightly. This was a real problem for the Babylonians later on because even while they were doing this act, he was raising up the Persians to come and to overthrow them. So be very careful about how we handle the things of God because God has a very long memory on these things. So if we go back forward just a little bit, uh, Zerubbabel then comes along about 70 years later and Haggai gives him this message of he and Joshua and all the people go and rebuild the temple. And they complete this this new, uh, and this is actually what Solomon's temple looked like, and they rebuild this thing back to the way uh, it sort of would have looked before. So look at the size here compared to an American football field. Substantially bigger than the tabernacle, much larger presence. So basically the, the Holy of Holies had some stuff bolted onto it. So you've got, now you've got rooms for the priests to operate in and some storage space and you've got some other activities and the, the court is much bigger. And on the outside actually you can, have, you can actually have court outside. You would go up to the stairs and they would hold open court and that's where the judges would judge the different uh, portions of it. I mean it's all kinds of amazing things that happen here at Solomon's temple. So this is the one that that the Babylonians come and they ransack uh, and just really, really bad things happen. Zerubbabel comes a couple hundred years later, rebuilds it, and then we have one more. Herod, you remember Herod from the New Testament? Herod knew the prophecies of the Old Testament and he wanted to be the one that fulfilled the prophecies actually in Haggai of that temple being greater one day. So what he decided to do is he was going to rebuild Solomon's temple. And he gave it an upgrade. I mean, a huge upgrade. So if you think about, uh, this is now the size of the temple that Herod built compared to an American football field. It is massive. It is a ginormous structure with massive walls and there's different gates. And you remember the gates are talked about in the book of Nehemiah, the, the rebuilding of the gates and the different components. And you have these different courtyards and different aspects can happen. And just to give you an idea, this was Solomon's temple. This is Herod's temple massive size difference. So <clears throat> building projects for a very long time have always only ever gotten bigger. Nobody's ever been satisfied with the size of the house that they build. They always want to build one bigger. This is a truth in the history of the world, okay? So massive, massive complex. Now, the question I ask for you, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, the question I want to ask is where is this building today? Like, it's what? Rubble. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rubble, right? Because the Romans came along in 70 AD. Now, they finished it. They finished this building. You know, this, this thing was being built for almost 75 years. I mean, it's a long time. The Romans came along seven years after it's finished, knocked it down. You know what's there now? Dome of the Rock. On top of the holiest place on the face of the earth, is a what? It's a mosque. Jesus will fix that one day. Okay? 
So this, <laughs> this stuff back here, he made promises to David and to Solomon that God will fulfill. And Haggai is a big chunk of that story. So as we get moving into today's text, I don't want us to forget that there is a much larger story at play. And it is still being played out in the world scene today. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. So in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month. So what month is the seventh month of the year? You don't have your Hebrew months memorized yet? I've shown you this several times now. You should have this memorized at this point, right? Tishri, right? Tishri is right here. So the 21st day of the month. So the 10th. Actually, the 14th day of the month, I think, is the, f- the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. So this would have been the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was required when you held the Feast of Tabernacles on the last day that a great assembly would be held. So all of Israel was in one place. This is not an accidental day. This is a day that all of the people would have been together. It would have been a perfect day to talk to everybody because everybody showed up for this. So in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, speak. So we have an imperative here. So go and speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. So that's the, uh, that's the political leader of the day. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. That's the religious leader of the day. And to the remnant. And this is the word that we talked about last week, this remainder of the people, saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? So this temple, this would have been What he's talking about is before the Babylonians knocked most of it down, who saw it? Who is out there that saw this? Now, this conversation would have actually occurred somewhere around 68 to 70 years after that actual event. So you would have had to have been a very small child and at the the time of the Babylonian conquest, and you would have to have lived all the way through the Babylonian occupation and the exile, and you would have had to have been released back, and you would have had to have survived the several hundred mile trip, and you would have had to have remembered the entire process to be in a very, very small number of people who would have remembered that. But there would have been a couple. And they would have known that the sheer volume of gold that they covered Solomon's temple in when compared to the thing that is lying in ruins right now wasn't even a comparison. It was dramatically different. Current modern-day estimates put the volume of gold that they just put on the Ark of the Covenant at somewhere around $10 million. They put the Ark of the Covenant inside a room that's inside a larger room that's inside a larger room of a structure that itself was covered in gold. Okay? So when you talk about, well, let's compare a building that's a pretty good size that's covered in gold to this thing that's mostly lying in ruins that we kind of started rebuilding about 16 years ago, but it's laid in ruins pretty much ever since. Which one's better? We're not even talking about a comparison here. This is apples and spaceships, right? I mean, this is, you need a, a totally different something to compare. This, these are not even comparable things. And so he's asking, who is among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing or a, a non-entity? And what he's trying to get him to see is that you're in a, you're in a hard way, Right? 
And, and a lot of us, what we do, it, what, a lot of us, Jim, here's what Jim does. Jim looks at what Jim has done and what Jim has built compared to what somebody else has built, and I go, oh, man. And I stop there. And that's not where Haggai stops. Because Haggai does not leave them going, what am I going to do? This is awful. We're not as good as what's gone before. And so here's your first blank. David Guzik has a great quote here. These kind of comparisons between the good old days and the present day, or between the work of the Lord in various places and times, are rarely beneficial. Rarely beneficial. In my notes, which I will encourage you to go look at online, there's an extended prayer that A.W. Tozier wrote when reading this passage about God help me not to compare what you have called me to do with what you have called someone else to do because we can just get completely lost in that. So then we come to verse 4. And I, I so love that he didn't stop at verse 3. He said, yet now be strong. Be strong. This is an imperative. He is commanding Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, another imperative, to Joshua, which should hearken us back to Joshua chapter 1 when the first Joshua, four times in Joshua chapter 1, is told by the Lord, be strong and be very courageous. 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 Because God knew what was in the promised land and it was not going to be easy. There would be bad days where they would need to be told, be strong and be courageous. And he had to get his leader pumped up and ready to lead for the job that was at hand. Yet now be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, another imperative, to all you people of the land. So this is not just for the leadership. This is for the people as well. It says the Lord, and work, for I am with you. Now, there's a really important theological concept I don't want us to miss here. Your blank there is near. Near or with. And this is, to me, the biggest fundamental difference between an Old Testament believer and a New Testament believer because God was with or near the Old Testament believers, which was fantastic. It was exactly what they needed exactly at the right time. However, God is in us. And there is a huge, huge difference. This is, to me, the greatest benefit of being a New Covenant believer is that you know God's not just near. I mean, I, I enjoy having somebody near, but having the God who spoke the universe into existence inside me, we'll be all right. We can do this. There's a whole different level of power and confidence that comes from that. Now, I think we should caution ourselves against being uh, arrogant and obnoxious with that, but there's, there's some confidence and some, some uh, enthusiasm that comes with that. So, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you. So another word for covenanted is cut, like you you cut something. Um, Now, how many of you, when you were kids, you made a promise with somebody and you may have cut skin? And like this was popular a very long time ago before like blood-borne diseases were known very well. I remember getting lots of lectures. I'm just at the cusp of that age where people three, four, five years older than me in school, this was very popular. And I got to benefit from dozens of lectures in school about we don't do this anymore because we have things now that we are terrified of, right? But 
if you ask uh, someone that's uh, perhaps a bit older than uh, me, you will hear about some promises that are made where you cut and you share blood together, and it's, this, is, this is not what this is in any way, shape, or form. A covenant in the Old Testament. I, I need, uh, I need a, a volunteer real quick. I need two tables that are a little different. Uh, I can do these two. That'll work. Can I borrow you for a sec? Sure. Awesome. I'm going to stand right over here. And I'm going to stand right over here. So uh, I'm going to use uh, Michelle Renault's table and uh, Darla's table as the uh, sacrificial table, right? So uh, Chris and I have, or we're going to make a covenant together. And what we have done is that we have killed a lot of animals because uh, this covenant requires blood uh, to be shed, uh, which is a really important Old Testament concept that is literally fleshed out. I'm using the words I intend to use in the New Testament. Uh, this is really important. And we would stack the dead bodies. So, sorry about that, darling. You won't get that on your, on your Bible there. Uh, we stack the dead bodies on the tables, right? And what we would do is that we would uh, recite some type of a covenant or an oath uh, as... Actually, we would start back-to-back. -back. I'm sorry. So we're going to start back-to-back -back in the center. Yep. And uh, the covenant in the Old Testament would involve walking in a figure-eight circle. So you go that way. And I'm going to go this way. And we would say something. Actually, you're going to go around that way. Yep. And we would say things like, uh, I promise to hold up my end of the bargain. And I promise to hold up my end of the bargain. Uh, and if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may what happens to me happen to, uh, may what happens to these animals happen to me. And we would covenant together and agree and this would be the graphical image in our mind when we agreed on this thing. Okay? It's messy. It's dirty. Covenant is not a nice, neat little cup of grape juice that we put in a holder when we are done. It is not an awful-tasting cracker that we can't wait to get the grape juice in our mouths to get the cracker bits out of our teeth, right? It, covenants were really messy, and, and we take a very sanitized approach to things because it's clean and easy and we can do it in mass quantities very quickly. But covenants were messy. It involved cutting things. It involved bleeding. And what God is saying here, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, this was almost a thousand years ago. God, for nearly a thousand years, had not forgotten the promise that he made to his people. And this is good. This is very good, because if we served a God who forgot his promises, all bets are off. We have nothing that we can hang our hat on. So he did not forget his promise that he made when they came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains or abides among you. Again, not in you, but among you. And do not fear. So verse 6 starts the, the kind of the trickier portions of the text here. So just... Hang with me for a second. So, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once or first more, it is a little while. Now, a little while in the calendar of heaven can mean a very long time on the earth. So let's make sure we understand that concept. When Jesus said uh, in, uh, what was it, uh, Revelation 22? No, no, no. When did he say, behold, I come quickly? Is that Revelation 22? Yes. Yes, thank you. How many years ago did you say that? Like a, a while, right? It's got a comma in it. And in his, in his view of the history of the world, 
it's, he's still operating under quickly. Right? This is okay, because my God has a different calendar than the one I'm looking at. I get a glimpse into this sometimes, but I, I'm, I'm not using the exact same calendar he is using. So, in a little while, I will shake or quake or tremble heaven and earth. So, he just finished talking about a covenant. Do you remember what happened on Mount Sinai when Moses got the Ten Commandments? The mountain quaked. That's right. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was crucified? Yes. The rocks rent. The, the earth moved. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead? All kinds of crazy things, right? Yeah. There were, there were earthquakes and dead folks be walking around. And, and it, it was, that, mm, I don't know about this now. That's kind of scary a little bit, right? You think of Halloween's scary. I'm, I'm going to say dead people walking through the streets is scary is what I'm going to say. Um, so God uses sometimes the earth moving to, to get our attention and call us to this is something significant that is happening in the earth at this time. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and the dry land. So this is a reference. This is the only time that Haggai is actually talked about in the New Testament is in Hebrews 12. So let's flip over to Hebrews 12 for just a second. And if you're looking for a nice, clean explanation of everything in Haggai, you're not going to find it in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is a little, little difficult as well. So. All right, let's read verses 26 through 29. I may or may not have put that on your handout like that. Hopefully I did. 26 through 29? Excellent. All right, you want to read it? Sure. I have Tim the Elder and Tim the Younger in the class today. So. This is good. And it's 26 through 29? Yes, sir. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that, are, that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. And with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So that makes all the book of Haggai make sense, right? <clears throat> That's it. That's the only New Testament reference to the book of Haggai. And you're going, well, what does that mean? Well, if I had four more hours, I could start to scratch the surface of what that means. I just want you to understand that there's a reference to it, and to go back and read all of Hebrews 12, and maybe some of chapter 13, and it'll start to put it in a little bit more context. But there's, there's references there, and the, the basic idea, like really, really basic level, is that there's stuff that can be shaken, there's things that won't be shaken. God's kingdom will not be shaken. Everything else is up for shaking. Okay? That's, it's poor grammar, but it's pretty decent theology, right? So it's as close as I can come. All right, so then verse 7, back in Haggai, chapter 2. Now, now, the other thing to understand is that when Haggai said these words, it was not an immediate fulfillment. There's going to be more coming. And when the writer of Hebrews said those words, they didn't necessarily think that it was done then either. There's still more coming. So this prophecy that Haggai is talking about has several different waves to it of actually implementation. So verse 7, And I will shake all nations. Now, something that we saw earlier is that is God okay rising and or, or 
raising up and bringing down empires so that he can do what he wants to do. Haggai has really pounded this concept into my brain that God is all right moving around large pieces on the surface of the earth to make His will happen on exactly the right day at exactly the right time. Here's a quote. I haven't found a better quote to describe this yet. This is Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary. The kingdoms of the world are but scaffolding for God's spiritual temple to be thrown down when their purpose is accomplished. It's like the ultimate mic drop, right? So please, Christian, please, 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 let us be very careful whose kingdom we ally ourselves with. Let us be very, very careful what we commit and pledge our lives to that is above the kingdom of God because there is not one that is above the kingdom of God. Let us be very careful in this respect. So the kingdoms of the world are but the scaffolding for God's spiritual temple. Now, here we get to the really tough part to translate of your Bibles. So I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Now, I want you to look at your copy of the Scripture and see Haggai 2, verse 7. The desire of all nations. Now, I want you to raise your hand if desire of all nations is capitalized in your copy of the Scripture. Okay? I want you to raise your hands if it is not capitalized in your copy of the Scripture. All right, so you have heard me say several times before that when you see capitalization in odd places, what is that generally a reference to? Jesus. So some member of the Trinity, specifically Jesus, right? Now, those of you with the New King James, you actually have both. In the text itself, it is capitalized, and there's a little note that tells you to go to the margin. And in the margin, it's not capitalized. And what they're doing here is they're leaving room for both interpretations of this is talking about God, this is not talking about God. And I want just to all to be clear that all of our translations make assumptions about the text. They all do. This is the way translations work. Good translations will tell you when they are making assumptions and they will show you a little bit of the fuzziness that could be this, it could be this. Now, the words are desire of, the na- of all nations. That is, that is what the actual words say in the Hebrew. What it's actually talking about is what's up for discussion. So the question is, there's really two different interpretations on this. And the first, you're, you're blank, is the desire of all nations in all capital equals Jesus. Right? And the vast majority of biblical scholars hold to this view, the vast majority. From the time of the rabbis themselves when they wrote this down and copied it and copied it, they thought that this was talking about the Messiah, that this one that is going to come, that is going to be the desire of all nations, absolutely. There's another view, and that the desire of all nations is the wealth of other nations that will be brought in to build up this temple. So view one is Jesus, view two is the wealth. Now, if you look at all the commentaries, I haven't looked at all of them, I've looked at several dozen, the ones that get into the text of the Hebrew and really look at the, the words and how the words fit together and the grammatical structure, virtually all of them say this is talking about wealth because the verb tenses don't agree to make this about a person. It would be very difficult to make the verb tenses talk about a person here. The ones that don't talk about the actual text of the Scripture in the Hebrew language virtually all say that this is talking about Jesus. So it's almost a, 
if you study it this way, you will come to this conclusion. If you study it this way, you will come to this conclusion. You want to know what I think? It don't matter what I think. That's what matters. So please be reminded of this, right? So there's two different options. Uh, I, I, one of the... Uh, you remember the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Do you recognize that phrase in Hark the Herald Angels Sing? There's actually... So Charles Wesley, he tipped his hat to which one he believes. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Wesley thought this was talking about Jesus so much that he put it in a song that we've all heard multiple times. And it is not yet time to sing Christmas songs, those of you that are pumpkin spice everything people. <laughs> when Thanksgiving is over, then pull out your Christmas CDs. But until then, First Opinions 2.16 says, Thou shalt not play Christmas songs before Thanksgiving. <clears throat> all right. So that's that. Uh, there are several more modern commentaries that say it is very possible that God left this a little bit ambiguous to go both ways. There are times when one piece of Scripture can actually be referring to two different things simultaneously. Have you ever said something that meant two different things simultaneously? Yeah, we do this all the time. Why would we not think that the author of speech could not do this? Right? So I want to I leave plenty of wiggle room for God to do what He intends to do. Let's just start with that, right? All right, so where are we at? The desire of all, they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. Who was the glory in the temple? The Old Testament temple, who was the glory? God was, right? His, his spirit dwelled there. <clears throat> in Matthew 12, 6, and in Matthew 26, 55, we see somebody else who was actually in the temple that Zerubbabel rebuilt. Who was that? Jesus, that's right. Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about this, guys. So when they rebuilt Solomon's temple, they were rebuilding it for Jesus Christ himself to come and to sit and to teach in. <laughs> now, I'm not one of those goosebump people. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty goosebumpy right there. All right. <laughs> um, I mean, imagine that. I mean, this is, so the, the Spirit of God is inside. The Son of God is teaching. And the Father is observing His flawless plan being executed perfectly. It is, I think it is spectacularly beautiful. It is spect so don't miss Jesus here. Please, right? Please don't miss Jesus here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse, verse 8, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Which makes me think that that prior verse was actually talking about wealth. But we'll get to that in a second. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. Why would the glory of the latter temple be greater than the former? Jesus showed up too, right? You now have two members of the Trinity there. Check the box. Hallelujah. This is awesome, right? You watch your Sunday school teacher get excited here. This is good stuff. This is really good stuff. And here's, here's the word I love. And in this place, I will give peace, which is shalom, which is safety or happiness or friendliness. It, it is peace. The blank I have for you here is welfare. It's another definition for the word shalom is the state of doing well in respect to fortune or happiness or well-being or prosperity. He is going to bring welfare to the world through Jesus Christ. 
This is beautiful stuff. This is beautiful stuff. So if you want to know uh, what I think about what parts are Jesus and what parts are wealth, this is as close as I can come. So they shall come to the desire of all nations, I think is actually wealth. And I will fill this temple with glory. That's probably Jesus. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. That's obviously wealth. And the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. I think that's actually both. And in this place I will give peace. That could be Jesus Christ's peace and uh, welfare peace. This is why prophecy is hard. <laughs> this is also why I've ignored it for a long time. So, so I apologize again for that. Uh, this has been good for me to struggle and to push and to, to challenge and whatnot. And I'm not saying that this is flawless. I'm just saying this is as close as I can come to reconciling the different components and what they apply to and what they don't. So very quickly, what's the application and what's the personalization? Application number one is history helps. Right? Seeing these bigger pictures help us understand how the individual components work and how they fit together. So what's the personalization? No Bible facts. Right? I mean, get to know your Bible. Be a Berean. I know we're not Berean Baptist Church, but that gum, borrow the name once in a while, right? Uh, number two, comparison demoralizes. Don't, you know, don't stop at the question mark. Keep going. Fear not. So stop comparing worth. You know, your, your ministry is not somebody else's ministry. Be, be the Christian God's called you to be. Uh, God lives in his people, number three, so be strong and courageous. I mean, times we have to be told that in the New Testament, right? Uh, number four, God will keep his word, so trust his word. Number five, God is not in a hurry. You know, if there's anybody that's in the history of the universe that's ever played the long game, it is our God. He is in this for the long haul. He is not in a hurry. So trust his timing. Uh, number six, translations aren't perfect. So what do we do with that? 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved. Know your Scripture. Know the version that you use. Know its strengths. Know its weaknesses. Know its tendencies. Know how it works. Uh, and number seven, Jesus is greater. He is what makes the latter temple greater. So trust Him. Amen? Amen. All right. So tonight at Saudi Daisy, I will have at least 20 to 25 more minutes to cover gobs of stuff that I had to skip over this morning. So if you want to hear more, come back to Saudi Daisy tonight and I'll be able to go a little bit more. So we've got two more weeks in Haggai. So I hope you uh, continue to stick around for Haggai. Uh, next week is verses 10 through 19, and the week after, the last four verses. Uh, and your homework is to read Haggai. So the piece of paper in your table, the weekly update. Uh, hang out for just a second. Read through that. Share your prayer requests. Pray as a table. Thank you for coming today. I appreciate you guys.